Great. Every time we have um, a non-elder preaching, um, and we just love to introduce them, pray for them. Alice, do you want to come up? I'm going to pray for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for Alice. Lord, thank you for the rich deposit um, that you've placed inside of her. Um, and Lord, I pray that as she opens your word, Lord, I pray that your word would pierce us to the heart. Lord, that we would hear all that you have for us this morning. Um, and that Jesus, you would really use her mightily. Um, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear um, what you're saying and you'd give her the words to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Rich. Am I switched on? Yeah. Yep. Excellent. Um, so we are carrying on the, the, li- the story of the life of David. And so far in the story, we've had David, the shepherd boy, who's been anointed by God to be king. And much to the horror of King Saul, because um, he knows his, his kingdom is going to be taken away from him. And he, David has faced much opposition. So Saul then, for the rest of his life, pursues David and tries to kill him on many occasions. But David wins the heart of the people right from the start. And even as a boy, he, um, he shows signs of being a messianic figure in, in terms of he brings salvation to his people because he goes out and um, he defeats Goliath and he saves his people from the enemy. And he goes on to win the hearts of many, many people. And gradually the kingdom of Saul goes over to David and he gathers more and more people. He gathers the waste and the strays and he creates this army that are with him and, that, and God is with him and he conquers the land and he conquers the people. And um, we're at the stage in the story where he's conquered Jerusalem and um, he's conquered, um, he's called it his capital city. And this is going to be such a momentous occasion. And by this stage, Saul has now died. And all the leaders of Israel have come under David. And where they've been divided for, for many years, they're now saying, David, we want you to rule over us. We want you to be king. This is, um, we are a united nation under you. And David, the significance of this is that David is saying, Lord, I want you to reign over us. And he is humbly saying, um, I want the Lord's presence to come up. So this chapter we're looking at is the Ark of the Covenant, which effectively is the Lord's presence, and David bringing the Ark into Jerusalem. It's an incredible chapter. It's a roller coaster ride of a chapter. We've got death and tragedy and bitterness. We've got dancing and we've got singing and we've got cake. And it's just going to be a roller coaster ride. And um, we're going to see more of God's holiness and we're going to see more of God's love for us. And we're going to see more of His extravagant love for us so that hopefully at the end we'll be able to uh, extravagantly worship Him. Are you up for that? Yep. God is extravagant in His love. Amen. Amen. So we read first the the chapter. So it's um, 2 Samuel 6. I think it will come up on the screen. Um, I'll read it off. That's probably easier. So David again gathered all of the Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned, chosen men of its... Is that right? That's not right. I'm going to read from here. Um... So David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of the Lord, and Ahio went before the ark. 
And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put up his hand to the the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King, and it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of the God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So, the, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michelle, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. She despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of the hosts and distributed among them all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat and cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed to his house, to each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Mishael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honoured himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Mishael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honour. And Misha, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Wow. What a chapter. So, first of all, I just want to look at the ark and what the ark actually is so that we get a greater understanding of what it is we're looking at. I've actually got a picture of it. There we go. So the Ark of the Covenant is not actually an ark in the sense that we think it. It's actually a wooden chest covered in gold, overlaid in gold inside and out. And it's got these poles attached, and the poles are attached for a significant reason because that's how God instructed Moses to carry them, carry the ark. And then on top, we've got the cherubim and these two cherubim facing each other with their wings held up and their eyes face down below. 
and, and this is the Ark of the Covenant. And then inside the Ark of the Covenant, we've got the tablets of stone, which are God's commandments. So this is a very, very holy object, and it's placed in the tabernacle. So when Moses and, and the people of Israel came out of Israel, God said, they said, Moses said, I can't go anywhere without your presence. And God said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be, my presence is going to come with you, but I need you to um, build this Ark and this tabernacle, and it's a holy place. And this part of it this ark was placed in the most holy place of the tabernacle so you had a holy place within the tabernacle which is effectively a tent and then you had the most holy place behind the second curtain and the ark of the covenant was placed here and in the center of the ark of the covenant was the law was the covenant and the the purpose of the law was so that God's people would be kept holy if they could keep the law they'd be kept holy and then God's presence could stay with them because he's so holy that only when we are holy can we be in his presence but because we fall short of holiness and we mess up, he, and because he loves us so much, he made another way. So that they have another covering of gold over the top called the atonement cover. And it's an, a, a covering, um, an atonement, um, it means like a payment for, our, for, for sin. So there would be an atonement cover, and once a year on the day of atonement, the, the, Levite, the head of the Levite priests who are... Uh, Uh, um, a family and a clan of Israel that are set apart for God they're the holy clan set apart from God for God they only one of them the head Levite would come in to the the holiest of holies before the Lord and he would sprinkle the blood of um, an unblemished perfect lamb on the the cover of atonement and it would atone for the sins it would pay for the sins of the people so that God's presence could remain so it's really significant imagery and we need to remember this as we look forward. And God's presence would dwell above this atonement cover, above the sea. And they often call it the, the throne of um, the mercy seat, the throne of God, because he was seated on this ark. So there's a massive significance that David is bringing the presence of God, the ark of the covenant, up to Jerusalem. And it's a huge occasion. Um, now, if we, I'm going to look at, I'm going to pull out three areas of this chapter just that we can look at. So I'm going to look at Uzzah and what happened with him, and I'm looking at David's dance and the significance of that, and then also we're going to look at Michelle and her bitterness. So if we look first at Uzzah um, and um, what happened here, so you think, gosh, this is this seems a bit harsh. Like he was trying to steady it, he was trying to stop the thing from falling over. Is this like what's going on here? It seems really harsh, and um, but when we look into it we realise that there's some serious things that they did wrong, all of them did wrong here. And when you look back to where Moses instructed them how they, that how they should carry the ark, it was always meant to be carried on these poles. So the, the purpose of these poles was that it was meant to be carried, and it had to be carried by the Levites, and it had to be carried by a certain clan within the Levites, the Kohathites, that only though they were allowed to carry it. And um, it should never, ever have been placed on a cart, and it was the Philistines who placed it on a cart many years before. So some years before, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines, and they had it for seven months. And um, if you want to see God's sense of humor, you should read that chapter, because it's funny what happens when the Philistines capture that Ark of the Covenant, and it goes into their camp. Um, but eventually, the, the Philistines think, gosh, this is this is holy and this is bringing havoc in our camp we need to send this back to the Israelites so they send it back on a cart and this cart then goes back to the Israelites and they rejoice they've got the Ark of the Covenant back and it's incredible but they keep it on that cart 
And now when David is bringing it up to Jerusalem, he, they put it on a new cart, but they don't, put, they don't carry it by the poles. So we're already offending God, um, and you're already de- defaming his holiness. Um, so there's already an offense. And, it, and we see in previous chapters, um, especially when the Ark of the Covenant is stolen, that God smites. I mean, when it's stolen, it's because two of Eli's sons, the priest Eli, he... Um, they go out and they think, oh, if we go out to battle, then we take the Ark of the Covenant, we're bound to win. And actually, um, God is not with them because they're wicked and they lose 30,000 men and they die. And then they come back and, and they tell a messenger tells Eli and then he falls back on his chair and breaks his neck and he dies. And then his daughter-in-law, who's pregnant, goes into labor and, um, and she dies in labor. And as she dies in labor, she calls her son Ichabod, which means, alas, the glory is gone. And all of Israel mourns because the glory is gone. The presence of the, God, of the Lord has gone from them. And... Um, so when, when they're bringing up the Ark of the Covenant, it's so significant that they're bringing up to David's city, the city of David. And, and it's so important that they honour God in that and they do as he instructed them to do. And it's kind of like casual worship. They just think, well, you know, we'll just do it the way we think. This seems all right. And it's just completely, utterly offensive to God. And the second thing is the Levites were meant to be carrying it and they're not carrying it. So um, Uzzah... It's meant to be carried by a specific clan within the Levites, and um, they've just totally forgotten. And actually, when I was preparing this, I really felt God speak to me about the sin of omission, which is basically when God tells us to do something and we don't do it. And this is really significant in the story because the Levites knew that they were the ones that had to carry the ark. They knew who within the Levites were allowed to carry the ark. They knew the procedure. They'd studied it. They knew it, and they didn't. They were casual about it. And David knew, and he, I mean, he's angry, and he's probably really upset. You know that kind of anger that you have when you know you've done something wrong, and you know it's your fault, and you get really angry? And I can imagine that was the kind of anger that he had because he knew he'd done wrong. He knew God had instructed him, and the Levites knew that they'd been instructed to, to... treat the Ark of the Covenant with reverence and honour and they were so casual about it and to be honest I mean God was light on them just killing one person because in times past he's, he's killed thousands of them and, and you know tens of them so to be honest Uzzah and the death of one was a pretty light um, payment for the sin that they caused with that with God now let's look at David's dance this is brilliant so we've got the Ark of the Covenant coming up. David now sees that God's wrath has passed. It's been Obed-Edom has been blessed. So the Ark of the Covenant has been in his house for three months, and he's been blessed. So he says, okay, the wrath has passed. God's presence is with us. He, he wants us to worship him. And, and, and I, now that my kingdom has come, that the kingdom that was promised to Abraham has come to a culmination of fulfillment through David um, and, and the city of David. He's gonna, he says, I want, Lord, I want you to be king over your people. I've been anointed king, but you are king. And he's got this humility and saying, I want you to be king. And he's going to come up with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of worshippers before the Lord in correct, right, rightful worship. And at every six steps, they take a, um, a sacrifice of prayer, and they do, do a sacrifice. And um, it's glorious, because God's presence is coming into the, the center of the city of the people of God. And um, it's interesting, the words that they use, because David, later on in the chapter, calls himself prince. When he talks to Misha, he says, I'm the prince, and God has anointed me prince. And you think, hang on a minute, you're the king. But 
He's lowering himself, he's humbling himself because he's recognised that he is under God and he's under God's sovereignty and he wants God to get all the glory. And David loves to give God all the glory and it's beautiful and it's just so models the perfect, you know, he's modelling and imaging the servant king, which might remind you of someone. Um, And we have thousands of of worshippers coming together and musicians. I mean, we're talking like hundreds of musicians, of trumpet players. We've got cymbal smashers. There's hundreds of tambourine players. It's something phenomenal. I'm privileged enough to have been to Jerusalem a few times, and it's one of those cities that literally takes your breath away. It's so beautiful. And for me to think of that beautiful city with thousands upon thousands of worshippers singing praise to the Lord, I mean, there's probably like a couple of hundred, if that, of us in the room. And we had one instrument today, and we made a pretty big sound, right? Imagine thousands upon thousands upon thousands of worshippers coming up, humbly, reverently praising the Lord. It's dramatic. And at this moment, um, David decides to pull out his best moves. And we're talking like better than MJ. He, I mean, some of the words translated are that he leaps violently in the air. Like, this isn't like a, a, a feminine, nice dance. This is a, a manly enthusiastic, robust dance. He's leaping violently in the air. One of the words translated means he spins in a half circle on his heel. I mean, I'm not going to try and reenact it. (laughs) Um, But you can just imagine, this is a really spontaneous dance, and he is giving his whole body in worship to God. And um, it's really significant, and and it's spontaneous, and it's beautiful. And he's leading his whole nation. He's king of Israel, and he's he's leading his his nation in a um, spontaneous worship of God. and I say spontaneous, but it's also intentional in that we, there's a significance about what he's wearing. So he's wearing this ephod, ephod, I don't know how to pronounce it. And um, this is one of the reasons why Michel scorns him. And he, there's a real significance in the fact that he takes off his royal robes. So he's derobing himself of his royalty to be able to put on the humility of an ephod. Now, ephod is something that the priests wear and when they're doing their priestly sacrifices. And even children, when they're entering into priestly service, would wear this, this ephod, ephod. And um, so it's very significant that David takes off his royal robes and he puts on this priestly garment and um, of fine linen. And it's not... It's like, in some of the cartoons, I think you see him in, in like something not very much, like he's half naked. But he is actually wearing a, a priestly garment and it's a very much um, a significant point that he is making to everyone. He is saying, I am a servant to, of the king. I am a servant of God. I will put aside my royalty and I will serve the, God, uh, the king of kings and the lord of lords because he is, he is the king over our nation. And... Um, it's the perfect antidote. There's so many people in authority or um, in royalty even that just have this kind of puffed-up sense of self and um, pride. And, and, and it, David just cuts that down and he says, no, the Lord, but the Lord. And he, he lays down his royalty. You just can't imagine like the queen doing that, can you? Just laying down her royalty and cracking out her best dance moves to praise God. Um, one day, I wish... Um, and sometimes I feel like we need to strip ourselves of our self-importance and we need to take off our royalty robes and take off our pride so that we can actually worship God in freedom and in truth and in humility and recognise that we are his servants and, and, and he is king and put him first. And actually there's amazing similarities between Jesus and David as we've seen throughout this series. And of course Jesus lays aside his royal robes 
become the servant so that he can usher in the presence of God and that we can be ushered into the presence of God. So just like David mirrors that, he's laying aside his robes so that um, he becomes a servant so that the presence of God can come in Jerusalem. And, and like that, Jesus lays aside his royalty and he um, becomes a servant and so that we can know the presence of God. And there's this beautiful childlike trust in both of them. They just trust in their king. They recognize themselves as his children and they put their, their beautiful childlike trust in him. And Jesus, in, you know, the most amazing poignant point of his life is in Gethsemane where he does that he says not my will lord but yours and he lays aside his will and his majesty and he says you you rule lord you know you are good and i know your will is good and i know your plan is good and i will trust you with childlike trust um and because he his blood is the perfect is the perfect sacrifice so if we go back to the ark and the sacrifice that was made for the people of God. Jesus is that perfect sacrifice because he was perfect and blameless and holy. By his blood and his blood alone, um, his sacrifice alone, our sins are paid for. So his perfect sacrifice paid for the sins of the world forever. That blows your mind. One person dying and his perfect blood shed pays for our sins forever and ever so that we can be united with God. And that covering, that covering that was there, that protection of, for us of God's wrath so that we could be in his presence is, is, is gone now because Jesus has brought together the law, which was at the center of, of the ark and, and us. And he's brought us together through his perfect sacrifice. And it's called the seat, um, the seat of mercy. And he is the king of mercy. He is the king of mercy. And he, by his sacrifice, he has paid for our sin so that we stand holy before the Lord. There is only one reason we can stand before the Lord. There's only one reason I can stand here before the Lord is because of Jesus and because I'm now wearing his royal robes. I am totally cleansed, totally made holy because of Jesus' sacrifice, his covering of me. And I can come into the presence of God. We all can come into the presence of God because of his sacrifice. Um, and the devil has no hold on us. And what we were singing earlier, oh, death, where is your sting? We now, when our physical bodies die, we get to live with him forever. There is no death. And um, if you're not a Christian here today and you think, why, why do they get so crazy happy about Jesus? This is why. Because he died for us and our sins don't count against us. And we can come into the presence of the living God and be in his presence forever. And that is that is why we get so excited. And, and, and David didn't even, he didn't even have the glory that we see. And he was getting excited. And he had these thousands of worshippers. Imagine how much more we can get excited and, and praise um, because he is worthy of our praise. And there's this beautiful passage in Ephesians. I'm just going to read out um, that kind of culminates what Jesus has done for us um, at the cross. And it says, um, Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. And thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, 
we both have access to the Spirit, um, in one Spirit, to the Father. Incredible. And Jesus has risen again, and now his spirit is placed in us, so we can dance and praise and sing freely because we have so much to dance about. We have so much to sing about. And um, it's often in, in um, we see in the Bible, often in the most glorious moment of praise, um, people get oppress- uh, oppression and uh, opposition. And here we're going to look quickly at Michelle and her um, opposition. So in in David's most glorious moment of worship to his king. He's got the nation behind him, praising him. And his wife, interestingly, in the chapter, describes her as the daughter of Saul, not as the the wife of David. But we know from previous chapters that it is the wife of David. But it's interesting that she is called the daughter of Saul because Saul hated David and he was bitter in heart. And it's like she's inherited this bitterness of heart. And... um, it's really significant. And she's offended by the clothes that he's wearing. She's offended that he's with the people. She's like, you're royalty. You shouldn't be uh, associating with the, lom- the lower people. And um, he's like, no, but God. God is, is worthy of my praise, and, and this is my people, and I'm the king, and actually I'm a humble servant, and he's making himself a servant, and he's taking off his royalty. He's saying, this is nothing compared to the, knowing Jesus, and I am a servant of the king, and I will put my royalty aside to serve the king, and I will be one with my people, and we will be before God. And, and it's beautiful, and, and it's really offensive to Michelle. And um, she, she describes them as vulgar, you know, dancing in front of the servant girls. And I think sometimes we can see ourselves in David at this moment where we get scorned and opposed when we worship freely, especially when we have, like, real childlike faith, like Jesus, and we really say, I'm going to trust in God. And to the whole world, it looks like you're mad. Like, what are you doing? And the circumstances can often feel like everything looks like it's falling apart. And to the world... They look at me and think, why are you trusting in, in God? Why are you even praying? It's so foolish. Nothing's happening for you like you've seen. You've been praying for that thing for years and it hasn't happened. Like I've heard that. People have said that to me. Well, you've been praying for that. It doesn't happen. What's the point? Like you're trusting in a God and he's not come through for you. So I think you need to try something else. And, and often we can get that opposition. And um, Satan, he, he, he hates worship of God and he hates us when we worship God and he does his best to kind of spread that seed of bitterness right from the start with Adam and Eve he spread that seed of bitterness and that doubt of God's goodness in Eve's heart and and we can get hold of this and we can start thinking that we maybe maybe we know better than God yeah maybe we just do things our way and this bitterness grows and we can start judging other people thinking that we're better than them and it's so dangerous and especially in our cynical culture that likes to judge everyone and likes to think we're better than everyone and there's self-improvement and self-perfection and we're going to be the best that we can be it's like it's so catching and it's so easy to become a part of that culture and um it's amazing what david does which i'm going to come to in a second but before that i want us to also look at michelle and how we can also um, be like that. So, like, yeah, so we can become bitter and we can, we can be like David in that we can face opposition, but we can also be like Michelle and be um, bitter in heart. And um, David's response is so beautiful. He says, The Lord chose me above your father, and he's appointed me as prince, and I will be held in honor by the girls you speak of. And he's saying, I've been chosen, I'm loved. 
I've been chosen. And it's, it's such an amazing antidote just to think, when we have opposition, when we have people that oppose us and think, what are you doing? You're crazy following Jesus. And we can say, I've been chosen. I'm loved. And it's the perfect antidote to any opposition. And everything David did was before the Lord. He was ever before the Lord. All of his actions were before the Lord. And... Um, he knew his presence. He knew he was loved. And so it didn't matter that he got opposed. It doesn't matter when we get opposition because we know we're loved. We know our identity. We know we are clothed in his royal robes. And the freedom that comes from that is incredible. There's such a power and a freedom. And I just pray for freedom over all of us that where we're bound by people's opinion of us, where we're bound by our own expectations, by judgment, our own judgment, and the the judgment that culture puts on us, I just break that in the name of Jesus over us and I say we have freedom in Jesus to know that we are loved and it doesn't matter what people say, it doesn't matter what people think of us. We are loved and we are chosen and we are his. And this isn't a dead religion. This is very much an alive religion. We were singing earlier, Jesus is alive. He is very much alive and living and we can have, like David had this incredible relationship with God, we can have an incredible relationship with God, a living relationship with God and know that we are loved and the freedom that comes is incredible so I guess my question to everyone is can do you feel like you can worship with abandonment not necessarily in a particular dance like I'm not saying you have to bust out the grooves um but it's not about the physical exact thing that you're doing it's about your heart and are you free before him are you holding on to bitterness what's holding you back is it fear of judgment is it fear of what other people might say are you, are you scared of yourself? Are you bitter? These things um, can hold us back and be able to worship God freely. And we see what happens when we, when we have this kind of casual worship with God and we don't hold him in his high regard. Like, he's called us to worship him. And, and when we put all these things in place to stop us being able to freely, dev- devotedly worship him with all of our hearts, we're actually offensive to him. We're not worshipping him. We're just caught up in our own mess, in our own world. And we're not worshipping him in freedom. And so with David, we see correct worship. We see at the end, he, he sees his sin, he repents, and he comes back. And if you're, if you're um, convicted in any way by anything I've said about casual worship, about not obeying God when he's told you to do something, then, then we, have, we have the covering of Jesus and we can repent and know forgiveness and come into his presence. And so I urge you to repent if you are convicted so that you can worship freely. And... Um, and you can worship correctly, and it will be a sweet offering to the Lord. He loves our worship. He loves it. He delights in us. It's beautiful. The fact that we could do something that delights him is amazing. Like He's done so much for us. The fact that we can bring him a, a sacrifice of praise that's beautiful and pure is a miracle, and we need to relish it. And um, when we see his holiness, when we see his holiness and what he's brought for us on the cross... When we have that childlike trust in him and a trust that no matter what we face, no matter what comes our way, no matter what opposition, no matter what circumstances, we know that we are loved, that we are chosen, and that God is good, that we have so much freedom. In our darkest moments, we can just let go of bitterness. We can let go of bitterness, and um, we can be humble servants before him, and um, we can acknowledge his holiness and be united with Jesus. And then we can become like children and leap for joy, and we can fall down on our face and hold him in reverent fear. 
and um, we can be devoted in love and worship together. We are God's people. David worshipped with his people. This is a community event. We, We worship together. It's about our hearts individually, but it's about a community coming together and saying, Lord, you reign over us. You are sovereign over us. You are holy, and we're going to be your children, and we're going to worship you in, in spirit and in truth and, um, and in joy. And, and so that's what I pray that we do, and I'll, I'll pray for us now and just pray that he can really reveal that to us. He can reveal his holiness, and he can help us to have childlike trust in him. Lord, I thank you so much for this passage. I thank you so much that you, you have given the perfect holy sacrifice that your sacrifice on the cross was so perfect and holy that our sins have been paid for, that we are liberated from the debt held against us and that we can come into your presence. We can know you, we can worship you and I thank you that we don't need to be a part of the things of this culture and the things of this world that stop us from worshipping you. We don't need to believe the lies of the devil that make us self-important but we can just let go of all of that and take off our self-important royal robes and put on our servant our servant robes of just a loyalty and devotion to you and worship you in spirit and in truth. I thank you for your freedom that you brought us, Jesus. I thank you for your spirit inside of us. And I pray you help us now to worship you in freedom, in a new freedom, Lord, that we've never experienced before. I pray you just bring revelation of this truth and a new freedom in the name of Jesus. Amen.